The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Okay. Um, I also want to share with you something that I got this week. Uh, <clears throat> got a financial gift and a card from someone. Uh, I'm just Let's just say Lori. So, you know, I don't know if they want me to share their name, but that's Lori. There's a lot of Lori's out there, okay? But here's what I liked about the card. Dear Brian Bible Church, I very much appreciate the service of, of everyone who makes it possible for me to worship, sing, learn, and grow spiritually. All right, did you catch what she said? I very much appreciate the service of everyone who makes that possible. So that would be Charity and Garrett. And Jeff, everybody who makes what we do, you know, this doesn't just happen. A lot of people are involved in that. And we got Charity and Garrett back there with the live stream making sure we can go out and be seen. And then Jeff takes the video and edits it on Sunday afternoon and puts it on YouTube. He also takes the transcripts, puts them on. So there's a lot of people involved in this. And I just, I appreciated this card because... I can't do what I do without these other people. And they don't get enough recognition, but I also appreciate you people and what you do to make this possible. Uh, it's a team effort, you know, and, and I'm just thankful to the Lord for the opportunity that we have to, you know, this little church in Virginia Beach to share our message with so many people. And uh, thank you. Thank you for your service. We appreciate it. All right. <laughs> now what? <laughs> okay. Suck it up. He's capturing those tears. All right. Okay. Let's uh, let's see if we can. <laughs> hey, this week I had some time to study and stuff for this message, so this should be a piece of cake. You know. <laughs> Good morning, Brands. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate you being here. We're continuing our study of 3 John this morning. I, I've enjoyed this. You know, I enjoy every study, okay? Every book I get in, I'm just like, wow, this is good. I really enjoy this. I never knew this stuff was in there before. You read it, you just don't get that. You know, I get, I get emails, and I get texts, and I get phone calls, people saying, what does this mean? Can you explain this verse? Can you? And here's, I'm going to give you my answer right now so you'll understand this, so you don't even have to bother writing me, okay? If I studied it, it's on the website. If I didn't study it, I don't want to make a comment. It'd be a comment in ignorance. So you don't even have to write me. You can just go to the website, go to the search engine, type in what you're looking for, and you'll find my answer. Save me a lot of time, because that's what I'll do. I'll, just, I'll have to go to the search engine to find out what I said anyway. So, And like I said, if I haven't taught on it, I really like, don't like to answer questions, because I really don't know. I haven't dug into that. All right, well, in this study, we found that this letter really revolves around three men, Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. The letter is written to Gaius, and the first eight verses are basically a, a commendation, an encouragement to Gaius because of his hospitality, because of his taking in these traveling preachers. And then in verse 9 to 11, we have this sharp contrast, and it deals with Diotrephes, who was an elder in the church that Gaius was a part of, an elder who had a real problem with pride, okay? He had risen to the top somehow. I don't know how that happened in an eldership, but he had taken over, 
And then we have verse 12 that deals with Demetrius, who is a faithful man who probably is the guy who's carrying the letter to Gaius. Now, we ended with verse 9 in our last study that says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, he doesn't acknowledge our authority. Now, when he says, I've written to the church, this indicates that there was a prior communication from John, not to Gaius, but to the church, but somehow Diotrephes cut that letter off, he threw it away, he didn't want the church to get that letter, and so then John writes to Gaius, someone in the church, because he can't get it to the church, because Diotrephes with his big head is blocking stuff. Uh, do you remember what this guy's name means? Diotrephes? It means reared by or nursed by Zeus. It's a name found only among nobility in ancient families. So this guy had some money, come from a noble family. He thought he was something, okay? Even in the church, he thought he was something. And it says he doesn't acknowledge our authority. Now, this would refer to the authority from the apostolic circle. John is writing from Jerusalem, part of this circle. And the reason he doesn't accept their authority is because he likes to put himself first. (laughs) This is a form, the compound Greek word, Philoprotuo, and it, it's from phileo, which means to love, and protuo, which means foremost or hold first in rank. So this guy loves to be first in rank. Now, notice that John did not say or imply that he held false doctrine. And that's important for us to understand. His theology, as far as we know, is orthodox. His problem wasn't his theology. His problem was his behavior. You can have an elder, you can have someone in the church, their theology is perfect. But if they can't live it out, that's a problem, people. And too often in the church, when you have someone with a behavior problem, it's swept under the rug or it's overlooked or whatever. That's not what should happen. They need to be dealt with. The only person this guy loved was himself. And the root problem is pride. Now, we talked about pride Last study, we spent the whole time dealing with pride and its destruction. But we can maybe talk a little bit more about it because it's a problem we need to deal with. Everything you need to know about pride is found in what James and Peter both say. They both say this, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That should be all you need to know. God opposes the proud. God opposes them. I mean, you don't... You know, when people oppose you, it's not a good feeling. When God opposes you, people, you're in a bad situation. You're never going to win that one, okay? He gives grace to the humble. So anytime that we as believers act in pride, we're putting ourselves in a position of opposition to God. Think about that. But He gives grace to the humble. C.S. Lewis said this, Pride is the sin that made the devil the devil. Think about that. How do you make the devil the devil? The devil's already the devil. Let me, let me say, I think this would be better said this way. Pride is the sin that made the anointed cherub the devil. To me, that has more power to it. You know, that's okay, so pride is very damaging. Here's this anointed cherub who is now the devil. The cherub that guarded the throne of Yahweh is the devil now. 
Think about the destruction of pride. This is the height of it, okay? This cherub was unwilling to be what God had created him to be, and because of that he fell. He desired rather to be as Isaiah 14 talks about, 14.14, he desired to be like the Most High. I think we learned something about the fall of Satan in the passages of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And the passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel are about an evil tyrant king. Okay, he's writing to the, these tyrant kings whose pride is described in terms of an ancient story about a divine being who fell from paradise. So behind the scenes, he's, he's rebuking these kings, but he's rebuking them with an ancient story of, here's the damage pride brings. You're proudful, king, but let me tell you, here's what happens. The devil was proudful, this anointed cherub was proudful, and because of his rebellion, he fell. Now, these accounts reference Eden directly, in Ezekiel's case, and indirectly in Isaiah's case, notice what Ezekiel says. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Okay, this is addressed to the prince of Tyre. Was the prince of Tyre in the garden of Eden? No, he's going, he's given the backstory here. Your pride is like this pride of this person, all right? Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. These stones elsewhere in Scripture describe the brightness of Yahweh's throne. So whoever this is, he's talking about, he's in Yahweh's temple. He's at the throne of God. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. Now, anointed, guarded cherub here. Anointed is the word mashach, which means anointed. But it may come from a Semitic homonym to shine. It would be the shining cherub. Now, if you remember the serpent from the Garden of Eden, shining is one of the translations of that word. All right? So you have this cherub. Now, cherub and seraphim are the same. And in Assyrian, it is a throne guardian. That's what a cherub is. That's what a seraphim. They're throne guardians. Brown Driver Briggs' definition is an angelic being, a guardian of Eden. So the cherub figure is in the midst of the stones of fire, the text says, which is a reference to the divine council. So in this text, Eden is called a garden and a mountain. In Ezekiel 28, 12, it says, Son of man, rise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, Hebrew scholar Michael Heiser says, Seal of perfection here could mean serpent. Because in Semitic, At times, the M at the end of a noun is silent. It's called the enclitic M. And if that's the case, then we have the Hebrew letters here, Het, Vav, and Tav, which would be serpent of perfection. So he's tying this back to the garden and to the the serpent back in the garden. In Isaiah 14, 12, we have, 
How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. So this is the judgment, O day star, son of dawn, is Hillel ben Shekhar in the Hebrew, and it means the shining one. Again, Lucifer in the Latin Vulgate translation of Hillel, shining a luminous being. So connecting it back to the garden, he said, you have fallen. Pride is what took this being down, cut you down to the ground. This is a judgment of God because of pride. Look at Isaiah 14, 13 and 14. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. The five I wills here. Mount of Assembly is the home of Yahweh. It's the place of the divine council. So this divine being in his pride seeks to usurp Yahweh's authority. Seems to set himself above God and people. We know that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So he's put down. This is a, just a great example of the judgment and the destruction that pride brings. All right, let's go back to our text. So John says in, in verse 9 then, So if I come, and this is a third class conditional sentence, which means potential action. I'm not sure that I will, but if I come, I want to come, but I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. It just indicates uncertainty on John's part whether he's going to visit Diotrephes or not. He says, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So Diotrephes is talking wicked nonsense. This is the form of the Greek word fluoreo, and it means to gossip, to speak foolishly or senselessly. Now, the verb fluoreo is found only here in the New Testament, but the cognate adjective gossipy, fluoros, is found in 1 Timothy 5.13, where people are warned against being idlers, gossips, busybodies. All the verbs here are present tense. Doing, talking, refuses, stops, puts, all present tense verbs. This is the habitual work of, of this man who worked his way into the position of power in this church and is actually running this church now. We don't know how he got there. should have never happened. But he is just actively opposing the saints. Now, since Diotrephes made unjustified charges against John, John says he's going to bring charges of his own against Diotrephes. He says, I will bring up what he has done. If I get there, if I get to that church, when I get there, I'm going to bring up what he has done. He's going to make the following charges against Diotrephes before the church. He's, taking, he's talking wicked nonsense. In other words, malicious gossip about the elder, about his community. He's bad-mouthing John so the people don't listen to him. He, secondly, he's going to refuse to welcome the brothers. He's going to bring another charge. Because Diotrephes, these missionaries are traveling around. They're coming down there, and he, he doesn't want anything to do with them. He's not going to help them. He's not going to support them. Thirdly, he stops those who want to. He not only won't help them, 
He's trying to stop anybody who does help them. And if you do help them, he throws you out of the church. <laughs> Great elder, right? This is the elder in the church, people. So John says, I'll bring up what he is doing. And, and I really believe that what John's talking about here is a form of public rebuke. I think he's going to publicly, when I get there, if I get there, I'm going to get before the church. I'm going to bring up what he's doing. He's going to point out publicly Diotrephes' sinful behavior. Now, is that the right move? Is that the biblical move? Is that what he should do? What about Matthew 18? Huh? It wasn't written yet. <laughs> well, Matthew 18 tells us, you know, 15 through 18 tells us if your brother sins, you do what? You go to him privately, right? Okay, here's what we have to understand. First of all, this man is an elder in the church, okay? He's not sinning personally against John. Well, he is, but it's also against the church. So Matthew 18 applies to a personal offense. If my brother sins against me, then I am to go to him one-on-one, right? Tell him his sin, admonish it. If he doesn't hear me, then what? You take somebody else and you go back to him. And then if he doesn't listen, then what? Go to the church. Take it to the church. So, John's not skipping steps here, okay? The reason John doesn't follow that pattern is because he's dealing with an elder in the church. All right? Diotrephes' sin was public. It hurt the whole body of Christ, and it needs to be dealt with publicly. There are times when the sin is of a, such a nature that a public rebuke is necessary, and especially when it involves a leader. This is one of those times. Notice what Paul taught about sinning elders in the church. 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. All right, that's a protection for the elders. Some one person doesn't go, oh, this guy did this, this guy said this. Well, you got witnesses, you need two or three witnesses. But watch. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Why? So that the rest may stand in fear. Now, if you are familiar with your Bible, you know that when it says the rest may stand in fear, all through the Tanakh, we hear this, that all may hear in fear, that all God judges and He says that all may hear in fear. Why? You see the judgment of God and you're like, oh, I don't want that to happen to me. So do this in front of everybody so the rest of the elders will hear and fear. Rebuke them. That's what's supposed to happen. Too often, this doesn't happen, people. Like I said, they slip them out the door, you know, make some excuse, get rid of them. They don't deal with it publicly. They don't talk about what happens. And usually what happens is the guy will go down the street and start another church or go to another church down the street and carry on the same thing. I talked to a lady once whose pastor was in this town Built this huge church and then found out he was sleeping with a whole bunch of different women in the church. Found out they, they actually kicked him out. Well, he just went down the street and started another church. And I preached a message on it. I preached a message about his church. Church was called Faith Alive. And I preached a message and I said, this is not how to deal with it. You know, as a pastor, they're supposed to protect the flock, guard the flock, not rape the flock. All right? And I... You know, I really kind of blasted it. And we had several people that were from that church come visit us then. <laughs> you know, 
the message got out. One of the guy's wives he was sleeping with got the, you know, heard. I don't know how it went so far, but these people all heard about the message. I guess it's, I don't know, 10 years later. I'm at the gym and I see this guy and he looks familiar. And he finally comes over to me and he goes, you know who I am? I'm like, didn't you help us with our sound system? He goes, no. I'm the pastor from Faith Alive that you preached against. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I knew you looked familiar. (laughs) And I got, you know, I'm like, hey, what can I say? What you did was wrong, what you did was sin, you know, boom. I, I, You know, so we got it kind of it it, it out in the open then, and, you know, so uh, he's not a pastor anymore. So I I was happy to hear that because I just think that once you're in the pastorate and you mess up like that, I think you're done. Okay, because one of the things the pastor has to be is blameless on a balim toss. It means without stain, you know, without something you point to and say, you know, how do you do? You're messed up. Let me ask you this. Can you think of an instance in Scripture where we see a public rebuke taking place? What? Okay, that that's definitely... <laughs> That's definitely a public rebuke. And she said Ananias and Sapphira. I'm thinking more, not more of a death judgment, but more, more of a rebuke. Okay, thank you. Paul. Now, Paul rebukes Peter. All right. Now, think of who Peter is. Okay, Peter's the first pope, right? No, but, but Peter walked on water. Okay. Peter is, I mean, he's one of the apostles who is up there, okay? Paul doesn't care what his, how he walked on water or what he did. He rebukes him because he was wrong. Let's go to Galatians chapter 2, 11 and 13. But when Cephas, that's Peter, okay, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he's eating with the Gentiles. But when they came... He drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically because of this man's example. It's spreading. Other people are following. They acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by his hypocrisy. All right, so Peter is in Antioch, the Gentile church. He's having a great time there. He's eating lobster for the first time in his life. He's having crab legs, ham sandwiches. He's living. He goes, man, this is great. I love this. He is living it up. Then some Jewish believers from James show up. Now, James was the big wig in Jerusalem. Okay. And these guys come down. They're now coming down to the Gentile church. And because of fear of these men, Peter says, eh, I'm not going to eat with these Gentiles anymore. I don't, you know, I don't want them to think bad of me. He feared them. So he compromises conviction, even though he knew it was wrong. Listen, God had personally shown Peter, it's okay to eat with Gentiles. What I've cleansed, don't call unclean, go ahead. Peter knew this, but his fear weakened his faith in God. Worst of all, his bad examples cause other people to follow that example. Now, we're going to talk about example in a minute, but he's just a bad example. So Paul publicly rebukes him. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, okay, in front of everybody, if you, 
though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? So it, he's just coming right out, confronting him. Listen, Peter, this is wrong what you're doing. You're being a hypocrite. And again, think of who Peter was in the church. This is brave on Paul's part. Paul's Johnny come lately. And he said, I don't care. You're wrong. You're wrong. I'm going to confront it. I'm going to deal with it. All right. Now, in our text, we see John threatening to publicly rebuke Diotrephes if he visits there because of this man's sin. Not only does Diotrephes reject John and his authority, he refuses to welcome these missionaries who need hospitality. He prevents others from welcoming them, and if they do, he throws them out of the church. I don't know you could get much worse than this. He says he puts them out of the church. This is ekbalo, which literally means to toss them out, to throw them out. The verb ekbalo is used in John 9, 34, and 35 for the blind man who Yeshua healed being excommunicated from the synagogue. They threw him out of the synagogue because of that. It's also used of Satan being cast out in John 12, 31. Anybody who he views as a threat to his kingdom, he figures out a way to throw them out of the church. Now, let me just say here that Diotrephes may be able to throw people out of the local church, but believers are part of the universal church, and nobody will ever throw you out of that. Okay? The body of Christ, the universal church, we are in a position that we can never be removed from. Nobody. All right? Our membership in the body of Christ is eternally secure the moment we trust in Christ. That's a good feeling because, you know, I talk to believers all the time who have turned away from the church because of damage they've suffered at the church, because of just overbearing people who just try to control every aspect of their life. Diotrephes was condemned not because he violated sound teaching regarding the person and the nature of Yeshua. It was because of a contradiction in his life to the truth of the gospel. And again, let me just say how important it is. You have to live the truth. You have to believe the truth. Live the truth. All right? Elders are called to be an example. And if they're not an example, they're in the wrong place. Behavior is as important as doctrine for those who serve in the church because they're to lead by example. Look what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 1-3. So I exhort the elders among you. All right, he's talking to the leadership. As a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's the elder's call. Shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd has the idea of teaching, leading. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God will have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Within the church, those that serve in leadership are to lead by example. And let me just tell you, pride, that's not a good example. Okay? Leadership in the church is called to be servant leadership. It's different than the world. The church so often patterns itself after the world. It's not supposed to do that. It's supposed to be different. You come here, it shouldn't be like coming to the show, going to the movie. You got smoke machines, you got light machines, you put on the whole show. Welcome to the entertainment. No, it's not to be about entertainment. It's to be about education. 
In the Gospel of Matthew and in Mark, both of them, we have the story of James and John coming to Christ asking for positions of prominence in the kingdom. Hey Lord, when you get in the kingdom, can I sit on the left? Can we sit on the left and right hand? We want to be the top dogs in the kingdom. How about that, Lord? I mean, you just scratch your head and say, are these guys that clueless of what's going on here? I mean, they, like Diotrephes, they wanted to be first. And because of their their request, Yeshua launches into this teaching on pride and servanthood. So look at that. Let's look at what he teaches in this text in, in Mark. We'll look at Mark's account. Mark 10, 42. And Yeshua called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So Yeshua is illustrating his point from Gentile rulers. Now, the Jews had experienced a whole number of Gentile rulers, and the one thing was common to all of them, they lorded over the people. They were proud of their authority, they were very conscious of it, and they exerted it to the full. They were the masters, and they wanted everyone to know it. So this is biting irony here. He said this is exposing the hypocrisy of the disciples because in the disciples' desire for position and rank and precedence to exercise authority over the people, they're no different than the Roman leaders they despise. So you guys, you want to be like them, like the Gentiles? And I suspect their hypocrisy and their struggle is also ours. You know, People, it's just something so many people are ate up with our, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, in our church. We desire a place of precedence, a desire a place of prestige, of rank, so we can exercise authority or influence over people for our own benefit. The Lord says, but it shall not be so among you. The Gentiles lord over them. It shouldn't be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever be first among you must be slave of all. As followers of Christ, as those redeemed through Christ's blood, as those who now live for the glory of Christ, this isn't how it's supposed to be in the church. The phrase among you implies all the disciples, every congregation of believers. Yeshua insists on a distinct contrast between the world and His church. He says, you want to be a leader in the church, you need to be servant. You need to be a servant. The idea is of personal service rendered to others. The word servant here is the Greek word diakonos. Does that ring a bell to anybody? It's the word for deacon. Okay, And a deacon is someone who is supposed to humbly serve. That's the purpose of a deacon. He says, whoever would be first among you, listen, needs to be slave of all. The Greek word used here for slave is doulos. Some translate this as servant. That's a bad translation, okay? A servant is someone who can quit, right? I don't like this. I quit. I'm not serving anymore. Slave better fits the picture here. Doulos conveys the idea of ownership, possession, dependency, subjection, loyalty. It always conveys the idea, though, of willing service, not for service, because they are slaves by choice. A doulos has chosen to be a slave. They have willingly made themselves slaves of Yeshua to do His will. So the disciples' prime concern should be to serve. 
to be a bond servant. They're, they're not supposed to be sitting in places of authority. They're supposed to be servants. That's the test of greatness among Christians. They don't look for praise. They don't seek honor. They're not seeking position. They gladly take the lowest tasks if it helps somebody else out. They just want to be useful in God's service, and as long as God is satisfied, they're satisfied. That's true greatness. Now, John Eliezer, a.k.a. Lazarus, he understood servanthood. He wrote this in 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The call in Yeshua's kingdom is to be a slave or a servant. And in the context of what we've been talking about, it's important to recognize a slave or a servant doesn't direct activities towards his own interest. He directs his activities toward the interests of others. Humility was no virtue in the ancient world, and it's no virtue today. Okay, To be a slave meant that you were not a citizen... You didn't have rights of citizenship. You were not free. You belonged to another. You could not pursue your own ambitions, but were left to the desires of someone else. Someone has said, you will know whether a person is a servant or not by the way they act when they're treated like one. That is powerful, people. And that is so right on. You want to know if someone's really a servant? Treat them like one. Okay? And if, if they get offended, if they get all bent out of shape, they're not a servant, okay? You know, it's, it's like uh, the impossibility of humiliating a humble person. You can't do it. If they're humble, you really can't humiliate them. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. They'd just agree with you. That's all they would do, okay? You know, the church has, Protestant church anyway, has always opposed the papacy, the idea of a human head over the entire church. But unfortunately, among Protestant and evangelical churches, we have done, we reject the Pope, but we set up popes over every church. Every church has, a, you know, a pope over it, running that church, making sure everything goes the way they want it to go. That's just as bad, if not even worse. Those who want to be great in Christ's kingdom have to be a servant. Now, after talking about servanthood, Mark gives us the supreme example of servanthood, the Lord Yeshua. In verse 45, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I think you'd agree with me that the creator of the world, Yeshua, is in the supreme position of authority. But when he came to creation, he didn't come expecting to be served. He came to serve. How? By dying on a cross for his elect. By paying our ransom that we would not be separated from God. That we would have a relationship with our Creator. He who should have been served by all made Himself the servant of all. And Paul echoes these words of Mark as he calls his readers and all Christians to follow the example of the Lord Yeshua who deliberately humbled Himself. He does this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Yeshua. In other words, think the same way Christ had the same thinking Christ did, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't need you to know who he was. All right? I'm God. By the way, people, I'm God. No. But he emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. He took the form of a, of a servant. That's what he came for. Mark says Yeshua came to give his life a ransom for many. Ransom is the Greek word lutron here. This word is only used here and in the parallel passage in Matthew in the New Testament. Now, lutron's not a religious word in the Greek society of the New Testament, but normal everyday word used to denote the buying back of a war captive, as well as many other concepts. In other words, when an army was victorious over the enemy, they would take as many prisoners as possible for slaves, some of which would fetch a good price back in the land. They get back and they sell these people. All right, that's what happens. You're a subject of war. Well, in the Septuagint, Lutron was used of the price a man paid to redeem his life, uh, which was forfeited because an ox, his ox had gored somebody to death, Exodus 21. Or the price paid for redemption of the firstborn, Numbers 18. The price paid by which the next of kin could obtain release of an enslaved relative. You know, in those days, you could go into slavery because you owed a debt. You couldn't pay the debt? Guess what? You're now the slave of the person you owe money to. Wow, would our society be different? <laughs> you're in debt? I can't pay it? Too bad? Oh, well, don't worry about it. No. Okay, now you're this person's slave until the debt's paid off. Yeah, we'd have a lot less problems, okay? It was a payment made to obtain release and freedom. It was a substitution for what was owed. You paid the debt, you got out of it. The ransom price was his life. This is why the Bible says again and again that Christ died to save us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He paid our sin debt. Peter says Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. That's why he died. It was for us to pay our debt. We must understand that this act of giving his life as a ransom was intentional. It says he came to die. He didn't come to earth for other reasons and get caught up in some plot that resulted in his death. He came to die. Now that should take us back to Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That servant's going to make others righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgression. This reminds us of the purpose of the servant. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities to make himself an offering for our sin so that the many might be declared righteous. Now, in Qumran documents and in some rabbinic writings, the phrase the many is taken to refer to the community of believers rather than as a general term speaking to many people. So when you read that, he's talking about his elect, the believers. Yeshua was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, personified. That chapter is the best commentary possible on this verse. One who was totally self-giving for the sake of others. See, true greatness is not found in how many people recognize our face, our name, or how much praise we receive from men, how important we appear to others. 
In the grand scheme of things, those things hold no value. True greatness is found in humble service, and humble service is rooted in a Christ-centered life. You ever heard the Christian song, I don't want to leave a legacy, I don't care about a legacy? That song just makes me weep every time I hear it. You know, it's not about a legacy. It's not about what my people think about me. We're here to represent Christ. What do they think about Him? That's what's important. I don't want to live a le- leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me, the song says. You know, it's that they remember that I was a servant of Christ. And the letters of Paul really demonstrate this principle. Paul writes, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Yeshua the Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Yeshua's sake. Paul's saying it's not about us. We're your servants. We just want to proclaim Christ. And Paul was able to say personally of himself, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you the more, am I to be loved less? Paul says, I'll just pour out my life for you. God calls His children to discipleship, and discipleship is a call to servanthood. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedoms as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In the original Greek, Paul's even more specific here. He says, through the love, serve one another. And what love? He's specifically referring to the love of Christ. Through the love, serve one another. Paul uses another interesting little word, even more interesting when we consider that the entire message of Galatians is about freedom. The word that I'm referring to here is the word serve. Through love, serve one another, which is a form of the Greek word douleo. The word means to be a slave, to serve, to do service. The word's often used of nations that are in subjection to other nations. I believe with all my heart that we can gauge how much we are growing in our walk with the Lord by our willingness to serve those around us who can give us nothing in return. You know, we tend to serve other people who we, you know, we like, we think they can benefit, reciprocate, you know, we'll get something back out of this. No, it's those who have nothing to return and you pour out your life. And really, this is beyond our ability. This type of love and sacrifice doesn't come naturally. You know, when someone hurts us, when someone says bad things about us or or breaks our heart, our automatic reaction is to strike back. When someone is a taker, a user, manipulator, our automatic response is to run from them and never give them the time of day. But we're called to be servants. So I ask us this morning, who are we serving? Who are you serving in love? Who are you serving in love? Do you lavish more and more upon yourself? Or are you allowing the Lord to use your resources, your time, your abilities to bless others and to undergird what He's doing in the world? You know, if we take a look at our homes, husbands, are you serving your wife? Do you spend time thinking of ways that you can bless your wife and lighten her load? Do you go out of your way to serve the kids? Or do you see yourself as as a burden? They're just these people are a burden on your schedule. Wives, how about taking a look at your relationship with your family? Do you begrudgingly do the things you do around the house for your family, or are you aware that by serving your husband and kids, you're serving the King of Glory? We're all called to be servants. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, 
You need to follow the example of the Lord Yeshua and be a slave to all. We should all be working on our serve. The path to greatness within the church is servanthood. The point is, people, we all need godly examples to follow. But we have to be careful in choosing those examples, okay? Even those who are recognized Christian leaders may not be good examples at all to follow. we got to be careful. And so Paul says, beloved, don't imitate evil. Imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. So John again addresses Gaius, exhorting him not to imitate what is evil, which he'd be referring to the bad example of Diotrephes, but rather the good, the positive example of Demetrius. Do not imitate evil. This is the Greek word mimmeatmai, which is a present middle imperative, which often implies to stop an action already in progress, which is interesting here. Because Gaius seems to be doing everything right, but he says, listen, don't imitate evil. Just trying to strengthen this man. Our English term mimic is from this Greek word. We must carefully choose our role models. They ought to be mature Christian people who are walking in the truth. Too often, you know, we choose our role models by what the world's role models are. Those should not be our models at all. Okay, they have nothing good to show us or do for us. We should be different. He says, don't imitate evil, but imitate the good. We're to imitate those who are imitating God. Because ultimately, we're all to be imitating God. Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And Paul says, I want you to follow me as I follow Christ. That's the progression there. Now he says, whoever does evil has not seen God. Now this is an interesting phrase. Hall Harris writes this. He says, in Johannian terminology, it is clear that the phrase has not seen God is equivalent to is not a genuine Christian. Now, I think he's wrong here. Very wrong. All right. Do you know Christians that do evil things? Don't point the finger at anybody. Let me ask you this. Do you at times do evil things? Yes, you do. We talked about that last Sunday. We talked about pride. We talked about it today. Pride is a sin. We fight that. But it's something we all have to deal with. So what does John mean by whoever does evil has not seen God? Well, the terms that John uses here, from God and seen God, are terms John used in the first epistle to refer to a believer who is walking in intimate fellowship with God. The lifestyle that we exhibit is a direct reflection on the extent to which we have seen God, to which we know God. In other words, our lifestyle is a direct reflection on our abiding in Christ. We talked about this a lot in 1 John. Okay, There's a difference between a believer and a disciple. Paul's talking here about disciples who are abiding in Christ, who are following God, who have seen God. The expression from God in this context doesn't mean he's a Christian. Rather, it means he's a godly person or he is a man of God. In this context, it's a fellowship expression. The person who does evil may be a Christian, But John's saying he hasn't seen God, meaning he doesn't have a close relationship with God. If he's seen God, really seen Him, he's going to live differently. 
John was not accusing Diotrephes of being unsaved. He's accusing him of behaving like an unsaved person. And John's use of the term know God and seeing God are terms of intimacy and fellowship. They are terms of abiding. All believers know God to some extent. All right, John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life that you know God. So if you know God, you have eternal life, you know God in some sense. However, some know Him more fully, more intimately than others. Look what Yeshua said to Thomas. He said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know Him and have not seen Him. So, did Thomas know Christ? Well, yeah, he knew Him as Messiah, but he didn't know Him to the extent that he should have. The depth, the intimacy. Sometimes a person who's been married for a long time, then they end up getting divorced and they say of their spouse, I never really knew him or her. Well, obviously they knew each other in some sense, but their knowledge of one another wasn't complete or wasn't intimate. In other words, they, when they really got close, they're like, mm, I don't like this person. Okay? John's point was that our personal experiential knowledge of God will affect the way we live. And the way we live, obediently or disobediently, will reveal how much we really know God or have seen God. All right, let's move on to the third man in this letter, Demetrius. It comes from Demeter, which is the goddess of the fields and crops, and so basically it's a Gentile name. All right? Demetrius most likely carried this letter from John to Gaius. He's delivering it. It's kind of a letter of commendation for him. His name, like that of Gaius, is a very common one at the time. There's another reference to Demetrius in the New Testament and uh, the Demetrius the silversmith in Ephesus. Some people say this is the same one he got saved. Maybe, but I don't see any indication. I mean, there's nothing you can just surmise that, but you can't back it up by anything here. You could hope that, but you can't back it up. All right? Demetrius is one of those mentioned in verse 7 who has gone out for the sake of the name. He's one of these faithful men. He's one of those accepting nothing from the Gentiles that verse 8 talks about. He's one of those that we ought to support. One of those who we can be fellow workers of the truth together with. He says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we also add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. Like Gaius, Demetrius is walking in the truth. His life matches his confession. Now, in Pauline terms, he manifests the fruit of the Spirit. In Johannian terms, he's abiding in Christ. John is letting Gaius know that he attests to Demetrius' good character. It appears that Demetrius is coming to Gaius' church and needs hospitality and assistance, so John is writing to commend him. This is a letter of accommodation, yet this is a good man, this is a good teacher. Take care of him. Now, what's interesting here is John seems to be using a threefold witness here to speak to Demetrius. He says, uh, he has a good testimony from everyone. Hupo Panton. It doesn't mean every single person, no one ever, not everyone knew him, all right? He's just saying, this guy has got a good testimony. It, the hupopanton is in a perfect passive, meaning the testimony of everyone to Demetrius in the past remains valid in the present. They think well of this man. He's received an ongoing, continual good testimony from everyone. And then he goes, and from the truth itself. 
In other words, the truth bears witness to his good character. This means that his life was consistent with the character and qualities and moral standards of the Word of God. So everyone bears witness. The truth bears witness. And he says, we also give our testimony. There's your threefold witnesses. Three of us who attest to this man. Now, what he says here, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. That sounds an awful lot like what John wrote in John 19.35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you may also believe. Now, this really seems to be a letter of recommendation from John to Gaius about the missionary Demetrius. This is one of the good guys You can take care of him. You can support him. Now then, John closes the letter with just a typical closing. He said, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write in pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we'll talk face to face. So John anticipates a personal visit to Gaius' church, hopefully in the very near future. And that's the word soon here. This word soon is never used of the Lord's return. This is a different word. This word usually is translated immediately. All right, if you look up the uses of this word, usually it's translated immediately. So I hope to see you immediately, and we'll talk face to face. So he says, I'd rather come there and talk to you in person than just write a letter. And the expression face to face here is the Greek sotama pro sotama, which means mouth to mouth. In other words, John wanted to be with them. He wanted to be there in person. He wanted to be speaking to them face to face. He had a lot more to say that he didn't want to put on paper at that time and then he closes by saying peace be to you the friends greet you greet the friends each by name now peace be to you this is obviously a reference to the hebraic idiom shalom which can mean hello or goodbye so you don't know if the person's coming or going i guess when they say it it's an expression not only of the absence of problems but the presence of god's blessing god's peace These were the resurrected Christ's first words to his disciples in the upper room. Peace be with you. Both Paul and Peter used it as a closing prayer for God's people. Then he says, greet the friends each by name. This is an idiom for individually. In other words, greet each of the friends personally. Talk to them personally, warmly. This is used often in Egyptian papyrus to, to just individually talk to people. It doesn't mean that you've got to call out their name, but he's saying take care that you individually greet these people. So John Eliezer tells believers, pattern your life after godly examples. Don't imitate the evil, imitate the good. People, imitation is a part of the natural life. When we look up to others, we esteem, we respect, but it's important that you take John's words here as good advice and make sure that you choose the right role models to look up to. Choose a Gaius or Demetrius who are walking in the truth. Don't follow men like Diotrephes who are proud, who are self-centered, doing things for their own benefit. John says, follow that which is good, avoid that which is evil, stay away from it. I've always loved with the writer of Proverbs, the way he puts this. I always told my kids this. This was a verse I tried to stress with them. Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with wise becomes wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. you got to choose who you follow, people. You walk with wise men, you're going to get wiser. All right. In other words, you shouldn't always be the smartest person in the room. Okay? You'll never learn anything. 
All right? The companion of fools will suffer harm. There's always a judgment for those who are proud. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. I thank you for this brief little epistle, Lord. Encouraging, Father. Encouraging the church to exercise hospitality towards good teachers. Rebuking an evil elder in that church who was just so caught up in himself. The church hasn't changed much, Lord, over the years. I pray that it would still follow your advice from the scriptures. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Amen.